This is the podcast for the journal Genetics and Medicine, published by The Nature Publishing Group. It's the official peer-reviewed journal of the American College of Medical Genetics and Genomics. I'm Cynthia Graber. As the use of genetics in medical practice becomes increasingly common, researchers are also becoming increasingly concerned about how to deal with the issue of incidental findings, also known as secondary findings. Those are genetic variants that are found accidentally while looking for something else entirely. The real core of the problem isn't that incidental findings are anything new to genetics or anything new to medicine. The real issue that brought incidental findings to the fore is with the new ability to sequence, you know, all of the genes at one time or a very large number of genes at one time, the burden or the potential occurrence of incidental findings became virtually guaranteed with every test that's performed. Jonathan Berg is Associate Professor of Genetics at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, and the first author on a recent study published in the journal Genetics and Medicine. In the paper, the group of authors came up with what they call a, quote, semi-quantitative metric for evaluating the clinical actionability of these incidental findings. Um, We saw a need to define categories of conditions that you could use to organize incidental findings and help people think about how that information should be returned in a clinical setting. That is, they wanted to figure out how useful this information would be to patients and whether a patient should be informed about variants in any particular gene, whether it would make a difference in his or her medical care. This follows on classification work begun in 2011 and on a list of 56 genetic variants published in 2013 that the American College of Medical Genetics and Genomics deemed actionable. While Berg says the ACMG list was a useful one, he and his colleagues thought it would be even more useful to create a transparent process for determining actionability today and in the future. One of the advantages, though, of doing this as opposed to a sort of committee consensus is that with a committee consensus, we have no way really of knowing in retrospect at the time that 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 56 gene list was made, even though I was on the committee, For any one of those decisions, why was that gene included? Or why was a different gene not included? And there's absolutely no way to update that logic without having it articulated somewhere. And so by articulating a score for each of these criteria and by having essentially a knowledge base of these are the pieces of evidence we used to make those scores, one can then go and update the scores as new knowledge comes about. And you can sort of see, well, this score was based on this paper or this review article or, you know, this particular piece of evidence. We now know this additional piece of evidence. We can now add that, update the score, and you have a new re-evaluated medical actionability. So I think it leads a bit more to transparency and and sort of updatability than a committee consensus approach would. They assembled a group that included not only specialists in genetics, but also general practitioners, ethicists, and others. They tried to come up with a general consensus on how to evaluate which genes to include. And it was really the process of trying to generate consensus and failing to do that for many of these conditions that allowed us to see, you know, what were the the issues that kept coming up. And those issues that kept coming up were the five criteria that we eventually defined as being the core criteria of medical actionability, that being the severity of the condition in question, the likelihood that a person with a gene mutation would develop that severe outcome, the efficacy of any kind of management strategies that you could employ 
in someone who hasn't yet manifested symptoms to improve their health in the long run. The nature of that intervention, we, we referred to it as the burden of the intervention, um, or if you think about it in the inverse of that, the acceptability of the intervention, which really gets to the point of when you recommend something to someone in a medical setting, they are going to incur some type of um, burden. They're either going to have a, they're going to have to go to the hospital periodically and get a study done, or they're going to have to take a medication, or they're going to have to change their lifestyle or their diet. And so what is the nature of that burden that you're placing on someone uh, in the hopes that you will be able to prevent them from developing some condition? So in essence, that really reflects what are the harms of of a medical um, intervention. And then finally, how much do we really know about the condition and the um, intervention to be able to judge those for other categories? And so in total, that gave us five categories of, you know, sort of five aspects of medical actionability that we then fitted into a qualitative scheme that allowed us to assign a point, you know, point level of zero to three points per category. With that, they also came up with three bins to fit each variant into, depending on the score that it received. Bin one is for genes that should be returned to the patient because there's a clear risk of a future medical condition along with an existing intervention to clear and effectively reduce that risk or the severity of the condition. Bin two is for genes that might have clinical relevance, but the data aren't strong enough yet either about how likely the gene is to cause a disease or whether an intervention can help. And bin three is for all the genetic variants that don't seem to have any relationship to a disease. As a result of this process, the team added some genes that had not been on the ACMG list, and they removed a few. So many of the conditions that we disagree with the ACMG on are just simply conditions where we didn't find enough in the knowledge base about that condition to be able to confidently say that we could assign a a likelihood score or in some cases that we didn't find evidence of efficacy of an intervention. There is some subjectivity in the process. One criterion Jonathan Berg mentioned as potentially subjective is the acceptability or the burden of the given medical intervention. But, he says, a larger limitation of the score is simply the data researchers have for any particular gene. The score of a gene may change as new data becomes available. He said in the future, it might also be useful to add weight to certain results, perhaps the efficacy of available interventions, to get an even more accurate read on actionability. He also acknowledges that other groups may develop a slightly different method of evaluating the actionability of incidental findings. In the paper, the team wrote that perhaps the best approach has yet to be determined. But they say the transparency of this system should facilitate comparisons. And they conclude, quote, We anticipate using this or a similar metric to evaluate all human disease genes to guide the application of genomic medicine. Genetics in Medicine is the official peer-reviewed journal of the American College of Medical Genetics and Genomics and is published by The Nature Publishing Group. I'm Cynthia Graber.